Hello and welcome to episode 321 of the non-award winning or nominated UK True Crime Podcast. It's officially a Harry Free Zone, you'll be pleased to hear. I'm Adam. So how's your year been so far? Changed the world yet? Ah, maybe next week. Today's story is another one about how not to be deceived by the appearances of those involved in serious crime. As we well know, they really resemble the people who play these roles in Hollywood. As always, a quick thank you to my supporters at Patreon, and especially the new members of this community. That's Max Greenwood, Andy Barker and Daniel Griffiths. Thank you so much for your support. And I'm sorry to disappoint you. Not for the first time, huh? But no adverts today. I know, I know. 37th most popular true crime podcast in the UK. It makes me feel like a spare. Okay. <laughs> sorry, no more hazard, I promise. Okay, so let's set the context for today's story with our never copied guest a month and year game. At number one in the UK charts was Drag Me Down from One Direction. In the US, the top spot was filled by the weekend with Can't Feel My Face, which reminds me, good luck with Dry January, those of you who are doing it. And in Australia, the top album was Compton from Dr. Dre. In the news this month, it was a, it was a sad start with Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog announcing the end of their relationship on Twitter. Leading human rights organisation, oh, sorry, I misread it, I meant to say Google, announced its restructure as Alphabet, a holding company with Google, YouTube, Android and Chrome as subsidiaries. So the Black died at 72 in Spain and a bomb blast at a Bangkok shrine killed at least 19 people and injured over 100. You know, Bangkok has been one of my favourite cities since I turned up there when I was travelling at 18 and taught English. And I still feel the same excitement in a city where everything is possible every time I arrive. In many ways, very similar to Milton Keynes. At the Athletics World Championships this year, true all-round legend Usain Bolt of Jamaica added the men's 200 metres gold to his 100 metres win. And finally, in true crime news, in a story I covered on this podcast, there was a scene of utter horror on the south coast of England as a vintage aircraft crashed onto the A27 dual carriageway during the Shoreham Air Show, killing 11 innocent people. So did you guess the month and year correctly? It was, of course, August 2015. It seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Everything we've been through, 2015. But if you recall, it was a very unsettling time in Europe with numerous appalling terrorist attacks, including those dreadful events in Paris at the headquarters of satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo when 12 people were killed. Security agencies across Europe were on heightened alert for terrorist cells and those people who supplied them with their deadly weapons. And it was in 2015 when the British authorities received intelligence about a Kent-based gang who it was believed were able to access guns and were potentially supplying them to dangerous groups on the streets of Britain. In March 2015, the National Crime Agency, or NCA, began Operation 70 
as they looked at a group of men suspected of planning to smuggle weapons into the UK. Detectives were certain that 25-year-old Harry Schilling was the ringleader of this gang. He had experienced some criminality, but though his background certainly didn't scream international arms dealer, he was fined once for criminal damage and he'd received a caution for the same offence. In 2007, when Schilling was still in his teens, his dad Michael was sent to prison for 12 years for dealing in stolen truck parts. The NCA believed that this gang planned to buy weapons from the same Slovakian gun store as those used in the Charlie Hebdo attack the year before. Although Schilling, they believed, was the main man who had put the plan together and paid for the weapons, he couldn't do it on his own. Officers believed he was being helped by his man on the continent, a man called Michael Dufresne, and his oldest friend and loyal lieutenant and go-between, a man called Richard Rye. Schilling and Dufresne were involved in regular travel on the continent in the early spring and summer of 2015, and these increased approaching August time. Although they had used burner mobile phones to disguise their movements, the locations of their meetings with arms dealers in Europe were all stored in Schilling's satnav. And it wasn't only the satnav that was compromised. The Blackberry phones, remember them? Fitted with pretty good privacy encryption software, were sent to the Canadian Mounties to be decoded in order to intercept the messages being passed between the gang. The Canadians came up trumps, and unbeknown to Schilling and the others, his plans were already in tatters. The plan was to smuggle 31 machine guns and more than 1,500 rounds of ammunition into the UK by boat. The assault rifles, Czech-made VZ-58s, were mass casualty weapons. We're talking really nasty gear here. The former Eastern Bloc military firearms, deactivated and modified to fire blanks, were sold legally at the time in Slovakia. But they were, in 2015, very easy for black market arms dealers to reactivate. This just involved hammering out a metal pin, which had been placed in the barrel, and that transformed them into lethal weapons. Slovakian police estimated that more than 1,000 of these deactivated weapons were sold by a company called AFG, based in a small provincial town 85 miles northeast of the Slovak capital, Bratislava. At the time, the AFG website showed they sold a huge number of assault rifles, machine pistols and handguns. A deactivated VZ-58, which when modified is capable of firing 800 live rounds a minute, 800, can be bought for just under £40, and when it had been illegally reactivated, the same firearm could be sold for between 2000 and maybe £4,000 to criminal gangs in the UK. The gang were confident in their ability, and they were going to get away with the importation of the guns, and by doing so, one, make money, and of course move up the criminal pecking order, so they could work on even bigger deals in the future. On arriving back in the UK, having done the deal to secure the weapons, Schilling messaged, we are now officially gangsters. And Dufresne replied, fucking nice one. Schilling replied back, ha 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 ha, 
Defo, that's sick. Duck and run for cover, bitches. We are a firm, ain't we? And the frame responded, proper heavy and armed to the teeth. No one wants beef, fam. Now, you may be surprised to hear that I'm not a huge fan of the rapper Notorious Big, but apparently these were some of his lyrics. Gosh, how old and crusty do I sound? I sound about 110. Schilling also exchanged messages with a contact known only as B to arrange the onward supply of the weapons. As the summer progressed, NCA officers knew that the time for imputation was approaching, and this was a key time as they had to ensure there were no slip-ups. Their attention turned to 43-year-old David Bain, who travelled to Boulogne in northern France in a recently bought 38-foot motor cruiser named Abenina to collect the weapons. Rye had arranged for Payne to buy this boat for almost £25,000 of shillings money, but seemingly being aware of costs, they'd attempted to haggle £500 off the price, so they got it for £24,500. After leaving the Alley Cat, a houseboat in Cuxon in Kent, which he shared with his partner Jennifer, Payne then sailed back to Rochester Marina alone, where he moored the Albanina before meeting his partner. They then went to a pub and had a Chinese meal, all the while while the weapons were still concealed in the boat. The same evening, Payne got back on the boat in Rochester and travelled down to Cuxton and moored the Albanina next to his houseboat, knowing that the next day was when the weapons would be transferred to the gang. It was payday time. Cuxton Marina in Kent, 11th of August 2015. It's a pretty spot on the River Medway. It's around three miles from Rochester and it caters largely for pleasure craft. It's a popular overnight stop for visiting sailors and their boats. The skipper of the vessel David Payne and his companion on the boat, 30-year-old Christopher Owen, began to unpack their cargo into a waiting white van. But moments later, the quiet of the summer's afternoon was shattered as armed police surrounded the vessel and secured quickly Payne and Owen. Meanwhile, in a simultaneous raid nearby, shoppers at the DIY superstore, Homebase, watched on as three more people were arrested by armed officers. Schilling, Dufresne and Richard Rye were soon in custody. It was almost comical, I suppose, as Rye was left behind by Dufresne and Schilling to pay for items, and he saw them arrested. He tried to flee, but he was arrested in a nearby McDonald's restaurant where he just texted his partner saying, the police have got Harry. If you look at the CCTV footage, it shows shocked staff and customers gather around him as a plainclothes officer brings him to the ground. Dufresne and Schilling had been detained by armed NCA officers outside the home base store where they had just been trying to buy spades and pickaxes to bury the weapons from the boat ahead of selling them on to criminal gangs. That's an interesting thought, actually, burying the weapons rather than keeping them somewhere safe. Wouldn't that make them more susceptible to being found? I don't know. What do you think? When he was arrested, Schilling was overcome with the whole emotion of it all and he suffered a panic attack and he had to be given oxygen and first aid. As expected, 
31 assault rifles and 1,500 rounds of ammunition was uncovered. Rye quickly confessed to conspiring to import firearms and conspiracy to possess firearms with intent to endanger life. When interviewed, Schilling maintained his innocence, but he was quite happy to put the blame solely on his oldest friend, Richard Rye. He told how Rye was the real puppet master, and he only did a little bit of low-level work for him, collecting and dealing in cannabis. Schilling said he was a breeder of dogs and game birds, and he had an emu as a family pet, which he bizarrely said had been arrested in the past. Schilling claimed he had no idea of Rye's plans to smuggle the rifles and submachine guns into the UK. He said he found out about the boat and the guns only when he was told about it by NCA officers after his arrest. As the investigation progressed, it became clear that Schilling had made consistent attempts to cover his tracks and he was forensically aware. The gang wore blue surgical gloves when they handled the weapons and uploaded their smuggled goods from the Albanina. Schilling changed his mobile phone five times during the investigation and he always communicated with Dufresne via phones protected by encryption software. But as we've heard, it wasn't good enough. The phones and sat-nav were both compromised and Schilling wasn't aware. Not the sort of amateur slip-ups that you, as a listener to this podcast, would ever make, is it? The NCA believed they'd enough evidence on the gang. And indeed, three of them, David Payne, Richard Rye and Christopher Owen, all pleaded guilty to smuggling the weapons into the UK. But Harry Schilling and Michael Dufresne denied the charges and so faced trial. The security at the trial held at London's Old Bailey was really something else. Armed officers were stationed inside the court for the first time since 2008 when the gang behind the 53 million Securitas depot heist in Tunbridge faced justice in the same dock. The defendants made their journey to court by helicopter as police helicopters hovered overhead and armed police monitored the streets around the courtroom. It was said the bill was 720000 just for the armed escort to court. The jury were treated differently too, kept in total isolation, and there was police tape on the public gallery so that none of the watchers could look over and see their identity. To say the authorities were concerned with jurors being threatened is an understatement. NCA expert Neil Wildman explained to the jury that the guns in the case were cheap, easily obtained and readily brought across Europe's borders to countries like France. The guns are not as popular with criminals and drugs dealers because they are large and difficult to conceal. He said these assault weapons were rare in the UK due to the difficulty of getting them across the channel. He added that the devastating smaller Uzi-like weapons are more popular among gangs for their ease of concealment and perception as a status symbol among criminals. Dufresne, who was nicknamed Daffy, denied being Schilling's man on the continent. He told jurors that he too worked for Rye, but his job was buying and selling cars and he soon had planned to set up a new motor dealership in Belgium. In giving evidence, Schilling maintained that he lived a quiet life on his parents' farm in Kent, 
just dealing small amounts of cannabis for rye, but devoting most of his time to breeding emus and rare game birds and dogs, including the very rare breed, Caucasian Shepherds. In June 2015, Schilling, Dufresne and another man had driven from Kent to Eastern Europe. The prosecution claimed that the purpose of this trip was for the purchase of the weapons in the town of Zalaba in southern Slovakia. But no, said Schilling, this wasn't right at all. He said they drove 1,600 miles to the town of Zalu in northern Romania to buy a dog called Misty, a rare Caucasian shepherd puppy who was worth £2,000 for breeding purposes. The prosecutor looked disbelievingly at Schilling and asked him if that was the case. Why then did a sat-nav recovered from the car include Zalaba in its record of recent trips? We bought it from a Romanian lorry driver on the way back because ours didn't work, said Schilling, adding, maybe he'd been there. Schilling also had to explain why numerous Blackberry messages involving the guns referred to someone named as H. He denied that the obvious port of call, him being called Harry, he was the H in question. Instead, he claimed the following. Richard Rye was a drug dealer and he was called Harry the Monk because he could always find skunk, Schilling told the jury. So there we have it. Richard Rye, poor Richard Rye, was H and not Harry. Schilling seemed convinced by what he was saying in court as his defence, but would the men and women of the jury believe him? There was a hush in the courtroom as the jury returned with their verdict. Guilty. Schilling was sentenced to 35 years in prison, and Michael Dufresne was given 32 years. Passing sentence, the judge told Schilling, I'm entirely satisfied the truth is that you are the man in charge of this carefully planned, well-funded and sophisticated organisation. He said that this dangerous young man had been motivated by a desire to maintain, protect and expand his drug business. It has been said that it cannot be exaggerated that guns kill and maim, terrorise and intimidate and that's why criminals want them. This is why they use them and that's why they organise their importation supply and distribution, said the judge. He added that the operation could have caused carnage on a truly horrifying scale. Jailing Dufresne for 32 years, the judge said, you played a very significant role in this particular organised crime. Your role was not too far below that of Harry Schilling. You were the man on the continent making arrangements for the acquisition of the firearms. You were a very active, enthusiastic, and willing participant in this enterprise. Jailing Rye for 14 years, the judge addressed him directly, saying, You have been a close associate of Harry Schilling since childhood, and you played a significant role in these events. You were at Schilling's beck and call, but your role, important as it was, was less than Schilling, the frame, and Payne. And Payne himself, the skipper of the vessel used to smuggle the guns, was sent to prison for 14 years. The judge said, You have been assessed as a dangerous offender. I don't accept that you had a very limited knowledge of the extent of this activity, but I accept that your role, important as it was, was less than that of Schilling and Dufresne. Finally, jailing Payne's companion on that boat, Owen, for five years, he said, 
I'm satisfied that you played a much lesser role in the enterprise than the others, and the prosecution accepted as much, and they did not seek to challenge your basis of plea. It should also be pointed out that Payne's best friend, 58-year-old John Smale, and his partner, 42-year-old Jennifer Arthi, were cleared of the charges they faced following the six-week trial. Following their convictions, Rob Lewin, the NCA Head of Specialist Operations, said the following, We cannot say for certain what the organised crime group would have done with the weapons had they not been stopped. But the evidence pointed to them not being afraid to use guns themselves and to expand their influence. They wanted to move up in the world from regional to international gangsters. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's quite a story, isn't it? And what would have been the result if the deadly weapons had got through? Just how many lives would have been lost? A source at the NTA said, We can only speculate that some of these weapons would have been sold to whoever had the means to pay the asking price. I've no doubt that together we've protected the public and saved lives. I wonder what makes you get into the gun business. In this case it seemed it was all about money, but surely there have to be easier ways. Maybe breeding rare dogs? And I can't help wondering how it all felt on the day of importation. Certainly Payne seemed remarkably calm on the trip back to Kent from France, even going for dinner with his partner the night before, knowing that the weapons were on the boat. Surely on the journey back and when docking, he must have known this was the dangerous time and if the gang had been compromised, this is when he was going to find out. And if you look at the pictures of their capture, it's fascinating, I think, to see the look on Owen's face as armed police emerged from nowhere. And as for Schilling having a panic attack when he was apprehended, well, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. I suppose it suggests really he didn't have the temperament for an international arms dealer. Maybe he should have known his place and understood what we all know, that it's only governments who are allowed to legally deal in these weapons of mass destruction. But that's not for me. That's for discussion on another podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story, please head to Facebook, just search UK True Crime, and you'll find over 85,000 of us discussing all things UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show and become a better person, just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. There's loads of bonus episodes, behind the scenes stuff, chance to get a signed copy of my book there's a load 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 of stuff and information there so head over to patreon.com slash uk true crime okay so that's it for me for another week so until we speak again on tuesday next week please do take it easy stay away from bookshops and most of all despite all the others stay classy cheerio for now